pre-COVID, what I loved was that I used to be able to get on these things called airplanes. My wife thinks I'm insane. That conversation gets lost after a coffee. No, if, no, 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 stop, stop. Okay. If, if, if nobody's listening to this, I'm present, but I'm not angry. My mission is to save the world. Welcome to the next episode of In China Between Meetings with your host, Marian Danka. I'm extremely excited to have Richard Brubaker as the guest today. Thank you, Richard, for joining me. Pleasure. Richard is the founder and managing director of Collective Responsibility, founder of Hands-On China, yeah. adjunct professor, host of Entrepreneurs for Good, mm-hmm. chairman of the Sustainability and Corporate Social Responsibility Committee of MCM in Shanghai. Wow, Rich, you have so much on your plate. Can you give a couple of tips for fellow entrepreneurs like me? How do you manage your time effectively? Well, I, if, if we're going to start off there, I think you just have to have a process, right? So your process could be the team that you have at your organization or organizations, as is my case, or it could be a technology that allows you to cut through podcasts quickly or it could be uh, you've learned a process for managing your your upwork, you know, distributed workforce. Uh, I think at the end of the day, I talk, I talk a lot about process. And that, as I've learned over time by failing to have the right process, is what I've learned to be the key of getting a lot of things done. How about maybe some healthy tips? Like what time do you go to bed? What time do you wake up? Do you use your phone much? Do you? Because oh, uh, I, I see you on Facebook all the time, right? I mean like... No, 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 stop, stop. If if, if nobody's listening to this, so I'm not on Facebook that often. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, look, I I do not have, you're asking the wrong person. I don't have a healthy lifestyle. Well, I'm getting better, but uh, what time do I go to bed? Let's see, I put put little dude down about 10.30. I usually fall asleep for about an hour. I get back up, I'm up till 2, 3. Then I wake him and myself back up at 6.15, get him on the bus, and then my day proceeds. So I'm, you know, like I think my Fitbit says I get about five hours on average of sleep. Um, but I've always been a survivalist on three hours for many years. So I don't, I'm wired the wrong way in some sense. Wow. Uh, I work out usually somewhere between an hour and a half and two hours a day. Uh, weights as well as cardio. I put in my system about one, maybe four cups of coffee a day. Um, but usually it's one, one or two. And uh, yes, yeah, social media, but... Not the, I'm going to spend three hours debating with people I don't know <laughs> about things that I can't influence just so I can get myself all pissed off. Uh, I tend to use social media pretty tactically for the work I'm involved in or the people I want to engage in, celebrate, whatever it may be. So I'm present, but I'm not angry. Okay. On your LinkedIn, and mm. I think also in one of the podcasts, it's written that you are mission-driven. mission-driven. What's your mission? My mission is to save the world. Simple as that. <laughs> Seriously. My wife thinks I'm insane. Um, no, look, my, so it's evolved over the years, and actually it, it started off in little steps. I mean, when I came to China, I was in the finance, macroeconomic area where I was helping you know, banks buy 
non-performing loans, buy buildings, structure, blah, 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 right? And over time, I, I started volunteering. I started a charity. I got involved in the social side. I saw there's just a lot more happening here. And not that I was trying to save anybody. I just, I just really enjoyed it. I found a lot of fun. I was learning so much through that experience that it just kind of escalated. And around the time of the 2008 earthquake, I was like, I was already doing some CSR consulting. So I kind of shut down my old gig. I picked, I, I pivoted the the old company into the new one. Like it was just step by step. I'm not trying to, I didn't have this big grand vision, but over time what I've come to really focus on is what are the systems that make a city work? How many cities will we need work at 8 billion people in the city by 2050? Where is shit going to fail? And then who can do something about it? And that's why I have charity. I have consulting. I have academics. I have all these different pieces. They're all pieces on the chessboard, mm. basically to try and move everyone closer towards systems that are efficient, valued, aren't creating these massive externalities that are putting people out of work or, you know, food shortages or all these things that we that we're challenged with. And so I think at the end of the day, you know, if I had a mantra, it's, you know, shut up, do something. And so, yeah, I started several charities. I've started several um, for-profit organizations. I've been involved in, you know, multiple universities. I'm just trying to constantly be involved to Mm -hmm. help people move forward. That's super inspiring. You've been in China, in Asia for 20 years. So you're one of those. Oh, I'm one of those. (laughs) What's your story? Um, how did you end yeah. up first um, in Asia? Was it China or some other countries? It was Japan, 1995. I'm from Missouri, and when I was looking at study abroad, I had kind of France, England, Germany, Japan as the options, and I didn't really want—I didn't want to go to Europe. Um, I, I didn't have a sense for it. I didn't have a, a link to it that was very strong. But for some reason, Asia was there, and Japan was the only one that had a link to my school where I could have gone to China and I'd do a bunch of work and whatever to get, but I'm not someone who does a lot of work. I just made it easy, got on a plane, and it was just the most amazing year of my life at that time. So studied abroad about 11 months in overseas at the time, 95, 96, with a solid eight weeks living out of a book bag. Uh, <laughs> flew to Singapore, took the train all the way up to Bangkok, you know, jumped off at different spots, mm-hmm. flew to Hanoi, made my way down to Ho Chi Minh on a 72-hour train. I spoke no Vietnamese, and my cabin mate spoke no English. And I just came back like, that was awesome. I want more. And so the next three, four years, I went back to the States. I want to come back to Asia to work. I tried 1997, financial crisis, wasn't really working. I tried again in 99, 2000 a little bit too early, and then I went to grad school, and after grad school, um, I had a couple offers, wasn't really super excited, and said, eh, I'm just gonna try it. So I got a one-month tourist visa to Beijing, I booked a room at a school, language school, and said, all right, I'm gonna study some Chinese, I'll go back to the States, I'll get an expat job, they'll send me back. Uh, that one month turned into one year, one turned to three, three to five, five to 10, 10 to 15, and now I'll be passing 20 next January. Um, so wow. it's, it's, you know, the, it's been an adventure. And what brought me here is not what's kept me here. What's kept me here is like, I mean, I don't know how much you can see these cameras, but this is a super exciting place. I mean, China's divisive and has been for many years. And I think 
it's very easy to get into the minutiae of a tactic that didn't go well or a, a problem you have with how things are done. Yeah, but big picture, big outcomes, this place has been exciting for a sustainability person, mission-driven person, to look at how a city grows, the systems that fail, how the stakeholders come together, how innovation plays a part, the role for entrepreneurs, and that's what's kept me here. And then pre-COVID, what I loved was that I used to be able to get on these things called airplanes and travel <laughs> around Asia and actually see how the models from China were replicating or had the potential to replicate in Bangkok, Jakarta, Manila, Delhi, and seeing how their, what I was seeing here 20, 25 years ago, was taking off there in very familiar ways. And so for me, like, that's that's it. I mean, it's, okay, I'm talking really fast and rah, 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 but it's it's real. It's just, it's a phenomenal place. It moves very fast. Uh, and I think the only place that moves any faster than Shanghai would be previously Hong Kong and before that New York. And only a few times in my life I felt like I'm actually falling behind in other places than here. I feel like we're really moving at, at a very different speed. And that's that's exciting for me. So, that's definitely exciting place uh, to be for sure here in China, mm. specifically here in Shanghai, probably for most of yeah. us. Uh, Hands-on China has been around for 17 years. Yes. Can you tell me more a little bit about the company um, charity organization? Charity. Yeah. And uh, what are the biggest milestone you and your team <laughs> have achieved uh, during this time? God, I mean that that was the first real baby. Uh, I mean, I had some other things, but this was like the first one that grew up into an adult. Uh, it's my successful case-ish. Um, look, it started off with a few friends of mine and I. Uh, we'd volunteered up in Mongolia for a couple of weeks with Habitat for Humanity. I'd already worked with hands-on San Francisco as a volunteer when I was working in San Francisco. I, I held no position of responsibility. I just showed up when I wanted to, and I did what I wanted to as a volunteer, and I enjoyed that. It was meant for, for young professionals. So when I got here in Shanghai, there really wasn't much to do, and the the ability to get involved locally in, as a volunteer, there were very limited options. You usually had to make a long-term commitment to one organization or to one cause or to one facility. And I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get along with that, with that model. I really liked skipping around. That was my structure. So uh, my friends and I, a couple of them, I, I kind of like told them they're going to do this. And I don't know why they did it. But I basically said, like, look, let's just work this out. Let's figure out how we can as individuals who want to give back to the community, figure out like five five partners or a couple partners we can start with. And over the course of two years, we went from one event a month, one event every couple weeks, 10 volunteers, 25 volunteers. Um, you know, and then three years in, we hit our first milestone, which was uh, a company gave us some money to manage their corporate mm. volunteers. The irony is their corporate volunteers didn't show up, but the company said we'd keep the money. So milestone one, funded. Um, and I decided to take that money and I hired uh, my first full-time staff who is still our chairwoman. Uh, actually, she was my, my first, first team member. Um, we just had a lot of fun. Stage two came uh, probably about three, four years after that. You know, you probably heard a little bit about NGOs in China. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, Not easy. Not easy until... A sub, uh, basically a district of Shanghai's mayor knocks on your door and says, "We want to work with you." It's literally what happened. Wow! So we managed. When was it? Uh, it was the Minhang district. This was 2009, mm -hmm. and the district government was trying to figure out how to do more active volunteering with their own people. 
um, how to build a sense of volunteering and community within their district because their district was all people from outside of Shanghai coming in. You know, the community relationships have been broken from all their villages, and now they're all layered on top of each other. So, hey, let's let's find ways to help each other. And so we layered in pretty nicely. Uh, after a few months, he said, we want you registered. Two weeks. Like, you know, uh, sorry, Mr. Mayor, it doesn't really work like that. It usually takes a couple of years. And, you know, various ministries were there, and they're like, uh, sir, you don't know how this goes. He's like, as fast as possible. And it was done in two months. They gave us uh, 10... 10,000 square feet of space for free for five years. Uh, they gave us a little bit of funding. I mean, they gave us so much support and access. And I, I got to say, like, as <laughs> I was really discombobulated because they're like, we want to work with you. We want to put our team in your office. And I was a standard foreigner, like, I'm sorry, what? The government wants to sit in my office? No. <laughs> uh, but looking back in hindsight, like, oh, God, like, what an opportunity. Um, that was stage two. Stage three would be uh, we had a cash flow crisis. We had to exit that property. Uh, we had to exit that relationship, not mm. not fully, but we had a, a cash flow moment. I had uh, I was 17 staff or something like that. Uh, all this space, we were paying a bit of rent at the time, and I had about a thousand U.S. dollars in the bank. Um, we didn't have a sales problem, we didn't have a marketing problem, we had a cash flow problem, which was we were not up on our accounts receivable. We had let our terms go a little bit lax. We were paying for our clients' projects up front, like we were doing all things wrong, right? Uh, saved the organization, brought it back, uh, and then the current stage we're at is pretty much where I have been slowly exiting over time in my relationships with the organization. Uh, I really want to grow on its own to be very local in nature, and I don't have the best ideas. I'm not the, the right person to be running it, and so we're now in the process of rebuilding a board for the next stage of growth or whatever it may come, as well as finding some executive directors and different other people that can come in and really run the organization forward. Because it's, it's got a massive amount of potential here, uh, I think, in China. But as a foreigner running it or being seen as a face, that the potential is different. And that's not to say it's limited. It's just different. Um, in a way, it's more challenging, right? And it's for actually many no, you know, actually, businesses. I think in, there it, are some opportunities it's different for sure. because I can open up doors that my local team can't. But my local team can take things farther than I right. could take it, not because they are Chinese and I'm foreign, but because the the language and the 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 understanding of risk. Like like I'll say, like if I had a let and I'd understood what the government was asking me to do, and I said we want to sit in your office. If I if I'd seen that as an opportunity and not as a risk, mm -hmm. which some of my team members did, and we had some debate about that. Mm. If I that was. That wasn't a language problem. That wasn't a passport problem. Mm -hmm. that, that was me not understanding the right. opportunity for what it was. And I, I kind of, it's one of the things I look back like, oh, if I, that one thing could have really put us in a whole different category, for sure. Collective responsibility, mm -hmm. your, your second baby. Second baby. Tell me more about it. So we're, you know, we're, we're a sustainable agency. We help brands develop and deploy sustainable strategies and we work across industry across platform with consumer brands b2b food waste whatever like it's it's a pure agency and what we were trying to do as a starting point was to develop awareness and a bit of capacity in the companies to get work done now we kind of our positioning is scale and long-term project development and management so we run a CSR fund for a 
you know, luxury automaker. We're helping an athletic company identify and develop partnerships with recyclers in China that will manage all of their textile recycling for the region. Um, we've worked with food companies on what the food future looks like, and we work with entrepreneurs to figure out how to engage and fundraise in the same environment. So I'm really, this is where I get to go and play. It's a laboratory uh, as a way to drive projects. We do a lot of events. We try to do a bit of content. We release a lot of free reports when we have a free time. And really just trying to, I mean, balance it because it'd be very easy as, a, as an agency to hold on to all the, all the IP and what the learnings, but I'm really trying to find a balance where we can, we can help the community grow through this as well because there's, there's just so much to get done. And so now, um, besides the brands, I'm starting to work with a lot more entrepreneurs and even a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs who I've always heard are so difficult to work with and blah, blah, blah. But they're starting to really value um, these working relationships and see sustainability as as an opportunity for them. So mm. the, the organizations, you know, basically start off with like, how do we fix cities and what are the systems and how can we get everyone, bring everyone involved? And now it's we're developing some products around that to make that a little bit easier to talk through and to sell through. So those are the good things that you, you, you just brought up. Um, corporate responsibility, sustainability, um, leadership strategy. Those are the things that people talk more recently, sure. not only in China, outside of China as well. Yeah, sure. So companies are putting more budgets uh, uh, around this. Um, not really. No, not really. <laughs> but we see a lot of change at least, lots of efforts yeah. at least. And yeah. uh, uh, it, it's everywhere, right, on the surface at the moment. Um, so how China is doing in that sense? How, how China is different in that sense? So you just mentioned that people are getting more actually interested in this. Um, just Can you just walk through and well, give more insights about it? If there's one thing I'll say about China, it's that the problems are real here. They're, they're not sailing, you know, saving polar bears, which are 5,000, 15,000 miles away. They're cleaning up mm. their backyards. Mm. And yes, part of that is due to poor system design and poor governance and poor, yes, okay, but they learn quickly. And what I like about being here is that whether you're an entrepreneur, a brand, a government agency, once that problem is recognized, there, there can be an all-out effort to fix it. And if I think about, say, climate change and what many of my Western counterparts would be talking about, saying that China's failing on, they're fixing the smog problem. The smog problem is created by the energy system. The energy system also creates a carbon problem. Well, I don't really care if they start with smog and fix the energy system, or they have to be convinced on climate change and they fix the, the fact is they're fixing the energy systems. And yes, they're putting up more coal power. Yet they knock down five for every new one they put up because efficiency. Now, is it perfect? No. But look at what a lot of the other, you know, look, look at what a lot of other countries do. They clean themselves up by exporting their pollution to another country. Mm. China, okay, they do a bit of that, but not at the scale that the rest of the world has done. And there's really nowhere else to, for it to go. So you have a lot of innovation here. You have a lot of energy, like we're focused on energy or waste or food. So the most interesting investments and entrepreneurs and scale are here right now. Is it perfect? No, but it's not perfect anywhere. But what's happening here is the scale, the potential for scale, the, the intention to fix things. And sometimes that, that happens a little bit faster here because the regulatory environment is not so fixed 
and then they have to catch up to it, as we found out with, like, right. tech in general, right? Like, there are a lot of big steps being taken. And I think that just, it helps, but does it make it better than others over the long arc of history? Probably not. Probably just the same as many others, but at the current time, I found it to be a very exciting place to be, to practice, to learn, to study, and to figure out how to even apply back in my home country, the U.S., or in other regions of the world. Carbon neutrality 2060 is the big thing, right? And uh, there yeah. are lots of opportunities. Do you see opportunities for your area? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm getting so many phone calls about this. I think the problem is there's just so much confusion about what it means and what mm -hmm. they got to do. And, you know, so everyone starts off with these big conversations. What you really need is a strategy. Like, you need people to say, okay, this is what we're going to do over the next 20 years. And this is how everything maps back to it. And this is what the government's role is going to be and the regulations are going to come out and the price of water and like all these things are going to happen. The reality is if I'm talking to corporate executives, that conversation gets lost after a coffee, <laughs> right? Like, and they're like, no, what's the one thing that I can put money towards and get a KPI mm -hmm. and put into my sustainability report or report back to headquarters? You know, like, can you do an ESG report? Okay, ESG is a strategy. Uh, okay, can I just get a certification? Okay, uh, so there's like 19, uh, what's the one certification? It, it becomes very tactical very quickly because, yes, the topic is there, but I still would say a lot of stakeholders don't fully value sustainability in a way that drives a significant investment. They view this as an expense. Now, B2C is vastly different than B2B in that regard. And I'm not disparaging any efforts that are made by the brands that I will now mention. But if you look at Coke or Unilever against, say, GE or, you know, just another B2B company, right? Like Eaton, something like that. The B2Bs, they invest in operations, heavy equipment, infrastructure, long-term factory 50-year investment payback. So the way that they approach sustainability in general is on an operating budget investment in ROI over the course of decades. Process improvement, thinning of, you know, you know, reducing your energy, reducing your water, reducing your material inputs as a function of cost savings for the company. So that's their approach. Coke and Unilever, their approach, or Nike and Adidas, they're vastly different. Their consumers are worried about polar bears this year and they're worried about homelessness next year, and they're worried about education the year after that, and they're worried about COVID this year. So it's very marketing driven because you have to kind of tell the market that you care about everything. And I don't care what part of the political spectrum you align yourself to. I think we can all agree like there's a lot of issues in the world that are being discussed right now. So imagine being a, a C company and you're delivering to them water one day and plastic the next. Like, Everything is seen as an expense, as a marketing budget, as a PR. And so they, they take it differently. And that's not to say they're better or worse. It's just, it's a different condition. Um, so that's what I'm saying. Like some of the budgets haven't changed at all. Um, some of the budgets change every year. And, but I think within China, the nice thing is the government every once in a while <laughs> lights things on fire to show people that you need to make a long-term investment into a different business model. And I think if you're in the food, water, energy space, that's one that you're definitely going to see. Um, construction, you're definitely going to see. Because they can, they're measuring this a lot better now. So, 
That's definitely a big topic. And the final one, yeah. um, you said that there's lots of confusion. And I think when you talk about the sustainability, when you talk about the innovation, it's yeah. always a lot of uh, confusion and there is always the gap that need to be filled. Mm -hmm. And uh, I see you create lots of content, uh, yeah. podcast, videos, interviews, events. Yeah. Um, how do you see if it's working? Because you just put in all, all this content, right? To educate people, to yeah. bridge the gap. Um, but do you see that it's working and it, your efforts and time you spend is justified? Absolutely. I've built, I've, I've sold a lot of product off my content. I've sold a lot of product off my events. And it's to people outside, and even to people inside my organizations at the time, they view it as an inefficient use of resource. They're like, we should just be knocking on doors. We should just be doing, mm. like, we should be much more commercially focused. Mm. Look, I'm a little bit more balanced. I believe that if you can make the entire market smarter, you are going to get a much larger pie that you can all work off of. Where if you're just very trying to, like, what's a very product driven in this space, you're going to probably do move a little bit faster, but you're not going to move the needle, right? And so I think the other thing is that I'm trying to find a balance over time, and I'm trying to develop products that are specific to industries or specific to issues or, you know, basically create that focus that you have, like, this pyramid where it's very clear at the top, but underneath there's a much wider body so that when... When people's knowledge expands or when their interests shift or when they need to pivot, like they see you as an organization that's able to grow with them and it has a really good understanding of the wider challenges and then can apply those in very practical ways to their business challenge, to their brand position, to the consumer segment, to the stakeholder, to the upcoming rate. Like, if you can do that, over time you're going to show that you have real depth because right now and for several years, I mean, for many years before, for many years after, there's a lot of entrants who will say almost anything to occupy oxygen on a platform that they haven't really built. They're signaling that they want to do something. And that want to do something doesn't necessarily fix things. So there's a lot of churn in the market. Well, when there's that churn, you want to be the rock that everyone understands. Or they can actually say, like, that's the group you should go talk to. And I just find value in that. Is it the most efficient way to build a business? Probably not. But it's the way that I know. And I'm pretty comfortable with that. Thank you, Richard. Thank, Thank you, you very much. I wish you best of luck on, on the way to save the world. <laughs> I just want to make it home without crashing, okay? Um, <laughs> 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 no, it's a pleasure. I mean, I, I, look, guys, I, the challenges are huge. And the only difference is what, what are you going to do about it? I mean, it's, it's very easy to disconnect and not do anything. You know, and just do something. It's, it's pretty simple. Simple as that. That's all I got. Thank you. Thank you, sir. By the way, he's a great driver. Don't worry, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> that was Richard Brubaker. Thank you very much. Please subscribe, uh, like, comment, share, and I see you next time. That was In China Between Meetings.